0: Life is funny. Very funny. It often is never what you think it's gonna be. You know we plan a lot. We want our lives to end up where we would like them to be. When we grow up we have dreams and ideas of where we, we want to be and where we think we should be. I'm here to tell you that rarely happens. The best things that you're experiencing in your life really aren't expected. And the planning is important, very important. I'm a big planner. I think it helps the preparation is key, but be ready for unexpected things. And I found that all the good things in my life have been extremely unexpected and very wonderful. It was very unexpected to meet Doug Schrudig. Uh Doug reached out to me on LinkedIn And left me a voice message on LinkedIn. I didn't even know you could do that. And I had been on, I have been on LinkedIn for 12 years. And and I'm listening to his voice message on LinkedIn. And it just sounded like a really amazing, genuine, easygoing guy. So I reached back out to him. We had a nice conversation. We Skyped. He's from Canada. So we definitely... Uh, used Skype and saw each other and it was just a really revealing conversation and I felt like the next step was to have him be on the podcast to reveal more, to talk about more, and for us to just be honest with each other. So I'm happy Doug came on the show and I'm happy that you guys get to hear these conversations. Uh, Bringing them to light is really important. And Doug... Is just a great guy, and I'm excited that he agreed to come on. So, happy to introduce to you guys Doug Strudic.
1: All right, Doug,
0: how are you, man?
1: Not too bad. Give me a sec here. Just trying to get everything properly set up.
0: No problem. There we go. Ready to rock, huh?
1: There we go. What's up, man? How are you? Not too bad. Not good. It's been a little bit of a crazy time. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. I'm pretty good, man. I uh, got to set you up here, actually, because I don't normally do video when I do this. I just basically download the video, and then I take it and make it an audio whenever I do it. So. All right, one second here. Alright. So what's life been like, man? What have you been doing lately?
1: Uh, it's been a really kind of a, a wild and bumpy ride for, for us here. We've been in the process of trying to uh, find ourselves a, another home as the one mm-hmm. that we're living in is, uh, has been toxic for a while. So, yeah. Fortunately, the market in our area is incredibly dry. The demand is mm-hmm. high and the supply is low. So yeah. trying to find a rental unit is uh, really competitive. Sometimes yeah. you show up for a viewing, and there's like, what was it, uh, was that uh, Thursday night, I showed up for a viewing, and
2: mm-hmm. there was
1: 20 other people in line, Whoa! And people actually started to throw out numbers when they saw the other people there, and saying, you know, I'll, I'll pay $100 more, and somebody else was like, oh, we'll pay 200 more, it was like, oh, come on, this is for a <laughs> rental unit. This is not even buying a home, right? No, I can't even imagine what it would be for buying a home, I mean, a friend of mine's a realtor, and he was saying, people here are bidding... 80 grand above the asking price. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's insane, insane. Wow. And I'm also in a, a transition between workplaces right now.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: everything is just kind of, it's been a, a really wild ride.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that. Uh, you know, the housing thing is interesting. When I bought my house here about a year and a half ago, it was a similar process, very low inventory. And people were just like, we, I think there was like six people a bit on the house that we ended up buying, but we had to overbid for it because it was, there's hardly anything available. So it sounds like you're in a similar situation.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, it's been tough. It's been tough. And it's like, I I went to see a place this morning and, uh, it's cute, small. Yeah. It's just like, okay, can I picture ourselves here? We're looking to downsize a lot of our furniture. We're, uh, you know, how it is sometimes. You know, you, you start off, you feel very Spartan, you have very few things. Mm-hmm. You move into a home, and all of a sudden, you have stuff.
0: You collect things. Yes,
1: <laughs> you have things. <laughs>
0: they start piling up over time. Yeah,
1: oh, yeah. It's like, where, where did all this stuff come from? And some of it you look at and you realize that all belongs to the kids. Exactly it was your stuff man <laughs> oh, yeah. so it's just like okay can i do it because at the same time everywhere i look at i look at the garage because i've yeah. always i've always had people that have come to me for training outside of the workplace outside of yeah. uh, wanting something special more specific and so i've always had a training space for myself and for mm-hmm. them in my garage so that was that was something that uh, that i was looking at yeah it, it's been quite it's been quite quite the journey um, over the last, I'd say probably two months, with us really hunting hard, yeah, and still not really finding quite the right place. We have another place tomorrow afternoon to go look at that seems hopeful, but it's uh, it's a struggle.
0: You're doing what the millennials call adulting. You're being an adult. <laughs> <laughs> you're actually figuring your life out. That's what they call it. Sure. You're adulting. That's,
1: that's funny. Yeah, yeah, adulting. I've always loved that term. It's like I know the other. What was it? a couple of weeks ago, my wife had had gone out for the day and was doing a bunch of stuff and she left me with the kids and she was just like, okay, now for the little one, we like to make our own food for, for, Mm -hmm. for the baby. So we, you know, like we'll boil up vegetables, like, um, fruit, stuff like that, puree them. And she really wasn't too sure if, if dad was actually going to be able to get everything done while still getting kids down for naps, while still getting the, the four year old out for his bike ride and everything. And she got home and I was proud. All the bottles were clean. yes fruit fruit pureed and the the (laughs) boiled and pureed and the sweet potatoes and everything and she just kind of was looking around the house and she's like good job adulting i'm like come on
0: she's like doug you're a real adult actually you know (laughs) you've arrived oh
1: yeah but i mean it's been a i think this past year has been one of some serious serious challenges and i mean it's we we feel kind of like the universe kind of challenges us mm-hmm. I guess constantly. Like we uh we had something really scary happen on the weekend that really kind of had us focus on on our son in a in a very different way. Like he's a really mm-hmm. energetic kid. Some people would say almost hyper, but you get him uh-huh. outside and he loves it. He this summer at four years old he learned how to ride his bike, like I was saying before. That's great. He took off, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well we uh I left my job under not the greatest circumstances. It was a very uncomfortable situation I was in, feeling very, um, what's the best way to put it, like uh, intimidation tactics were being used on me by people who were intimidated by me. I see. It just, it got very messy towards the end, and when it it was finally time for me to leave, it was, I left there, my wife and I had already um, reserved a campsite for the past weekend, Last weekend, which here here in Ontario is a, a bit of an unofficial long weekend.
2: Mm, okay. August,
1: uh, the, the Monday, I think it was the 5th, was um, sort of an unofficial holiday. And the Saturday was our six-year anniversary. Right. So we, we headed out of town, probably about an hour and a half from here, to a little campground we like to go to. And I'd suggested that we go to this really cool place not far from there, about 15-minute drive, called Prehistoric World
0: prehistoric world,
1: okay. Yeah, it's these two brothers, now I think it's down just to one of them, that for 38 years have constructed life-size replicas of dinosaurs (laughs) out of rebar and chicken wire and concrete. Oh, wow. It's beautiful. They've got it on probably about six acres of land. Half of it is forested, so you're walking through the forest, suddenly coming face to face with these incredible <laughs> it's red like things. a t-rex out there or something. oh they did they had the <laughs> classic they have the t-rex and the triceratops face to face wow full-size brontosaurus i'm talking massive wow um, beautiful beautiful place and it's i took my my teenager there 12 years ago when she was like five and it cost three of us twenty dollars for the four of us, it costs 26 So he's only <laughs> raised the price as a tiny amount in you know, all this
0: stuff. Yeah. Happens to inflation. I mean... <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. Well, let's he, the guy. see. The guy is amazing, and he tells everybody. He goes, oh, welcome to my backyard. Yeah. So we're walking through on the Sunday, and uh, my son keeps trying to run, and we keep telling him, don't run. And the pathways are concrete and made to mimic like rocks. Okay. And don't you know it, probably one of the most rare things that could happen happens to my son he trips like running he's super excited because of all these dinosaurs trips falls and catches a raised piece of concrete in the middle of his sternum oh so have you heard of something called um i think it's uh, a cordis or no or
2: Have
1: you heard of situations where young baseball players like in their teens early teens um get a baseball to the sternum Mm-hmm. And then they go down, stop breathing; their heart stops.
0: Ah, oh, okay, okay.
1: That's due to the impact occurring between heartbeats. Oh! This actually happened to my son. Wow! I picked him up, and his head lolled back, and I freaked out.
0: Was it like lifeless, almost?
1: Completely, like... completely lifeless. I I freaked out. I looked at him, and he uh, he wasn't reacting. I watched uh, little purple veins from around his eyes begin mm-hmm. to show up. And I've got my hand on his chest, and I listen, and he's not breathing. And I look at his neck, and his whole life, he's just like his mom. You can see his heartbeat Mm -hmm. right here. Right here, regular in the carotid. You can see. Right. Since the day he was born, I've watched my son's heartbeat, you know? Yeah. Wasn't there. And I was freaking. And there's lots of people around, and my wife's screaming for help. I'm screaming for help. Nobody's reacting. And... I've trained enough doctors over the years and I've had some great first aid instructors who have actually over the years mentioned stuff like this because we sometimes deal with athletes or we're at mm-hmm. athletic events. Right. right. Especially with a little child. Um, they said before starting compressions, give a quick wallop, wide hand wallop to the middle of the back, mm-hmm. then turn them over and begin compressions because you want yeah. to get started again. You want to right. shot to the rhythm. And so I gave the huge wallop while screaming, and I had my, him in my arms, and I'm doing compressions, and I'm still screaming at the top of my lungs for help. And this guy comes barreling down the path around the corner, and it was like he was like a superhero showing up. Turns out it was this guy who had training as an EMT, and he was just like, what's wrong? I was like, my son's not breathing, and I'm still giving the compressions. Yeah. And then he grabs for my son. like He drops to his knees, pulls his backpack off, reaches for my son and my son coughs oh wow and it was just like this moment of relief as he yeah it was just utter panic and he grabs my son he checks him out he checks his eyes he's checking everything he asks my son what his name is there was another guy with him but like all these people around and nobody reacted except for this guy and his friend who were just like like superheroes swooping in and he was just like you did the best thing you did the smartest thing. He's like how did you know to do it i, I don't it was like automatic it was automatic right? yeah like you hope in that instance that 20 years plus i think i was a teenager the first time i had cpr training when I was right training. right so like 30 years almost now of of renewing that my training and learning different training techniques because every yeah. few years it's updated and it, it does changes. they do update it yeah Right. It, go, it goes from, you know, the staying alive to a different song. You know? mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was just like. He all of a sudden was, was back to life. The color came back, those little purple lines. It was almost like petechia around the, around the eyes. Yeah. Easy yeah. to see. And the guy like got his pulse and listened to his pulse and it was regular. And he's like, it's regular. It's, it's current. Like what happened? I explained everything. Lifted up my son's shirt. There was a tiny little bit of bruising on the sternum. Yeah. He, had, he had a frozen bottle of water that he put on my son's chest. And he's just like, okay, get him checked out. Take him now. Go. Go and get him checked out. So pretty much I grabbed my son in my arms. And my wife and I kind of, she had our daughter. And we sprinted back out to the van. Yeah. And, and got him checked. And that's what they figured as well. That that had to be what happened. But an hour later, he was normal.
0: He's he was back to
1: normal. Calm, yeah. and, and he doesn't remember anything.
2: He doesn't really?
1: Remember. Yeah, he's falling. Yeah, yeah falling, now. yeah. Falling. But it was, there was a moment where he was breathing, and he's back in my arms crying, and I, I'm on my knees, and the guy in front of me is on his knees, and I just reached out with my hand and said, thank you. And he just squeezed my hand, and he was like, dude, it's okay. He goes, yeah. it's okay. okay for you to be scared. It's okay for you to to feel that way. He's like, I got it. You're, yeah. you're okay, he's okay. And it was just like... To, that moment where you're still so unsure because you're a parent you know you're you're frightened you've experienced this trauma having somebody else sit there and look you in the eyes and tell you it's okay yeah that it's completely okay to be scared you know it was just like he was my superhero I was, I was so out of it I didn't even get his name and I feel like right <laughs> because he was for me he was my superhero you know like he I I may have done something to save my son's life but he saved mine that day because I was in a state of panic just working on automatic and I needed somebody to tell me that it was okay for me to be feeling the way I was yeah but it really kind of changed perspective I guess opened up the perspective on a lot of things I've been I've been working on during this period of of growth and development in changing from a company that I had been with for five and a half years and looking around at what some of my options were and looking at the industry as well yeah Change a lot of the perspectives. Um, of course, every hug is worth a thousand times more than it was. Of course, it is. Yeah. <laughs> you, you you hear him in the morning, and it's less of the oh, could you sleep another half hour? More, <laughs> I want that first hug of the day. Yeah. You know, I wow. want that first moment with him, and it it just like we after we got him checked out, we went for ice cream because it was just why not. Yeah, why
0: not go for ice cream?
1: Can can we have we have ice cream? And normally, no, 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 we're not. You know, we're we're going to keep with the healthy foods. We're like, hell with that. We're going to yeah. Let's do
0: some ice cream, man.
1: And I was sitting watching him with the ice cream on his face. It was probably the most beautiful (laughs) thing in the world. Wow, that sense of of that, um, I guess that fragility that you you're aware of through education, but only personal experience can really bring it to life sort of. yeah
0: i think we're all like that in some way we we think of ourselves kind of like because i want to kind of get to your strong man stuff because i'm just so fascinated <laughs> by it and you're, everybody thinks they're kind of a strong man or a strong person and then something happens and you become very aware of your mortality very quickly
1: big time this this was one of those moments for me it was definitely one of those moments and i've had a few i've had a few in my life um when I was 17, tree planting with my brother, mm-hmm. I watched my brother get swept into uh, a river. We were all trying to kind of bathe in the, 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 the waters that were blocked off by a downed tree. And my brother climbed over the tree and disappeared. Mm-hmm. And gone probably about a minute and a half. And I was getting ready to climb over the tree. And a friend pulled me back. He's like, no, 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 no. I watched the tree move. And then about 50 feet downstream, my brother popped up. But for a minute and mm-hmm. a half, about, he was under the water. That was oh, the wow. First time that I'd been confronted with the possibility of, of somebody who seemed so strong. And growing up, my brother was six years older than me. He was always this person who was strong and was stronger. Uh-huh. And it was that sense of no matter how strong you are, you know, these things can happen. And you're still subject to the, the whims of nature, so to speak.
3: Yes. And yes.
1: It, no matter what, we're still... At the at the, the the beck and call of what nature is willing to provide so it was it was an eye-opener then having it happen to my son is not something I would definitely would have wished upon anybody no no hope to experience but I mean in the when I when I started in the strongman world I got to meet some really cool individuals that um, impressed upon me um, the essence of willpower how mm. I worked with, like, I got to, well, I got to to compete with some individuals who, um, some who were master technicians who physically, I was stronger than in terms of the numbers, in terms yeah. of certain, but because of their, their technical prowess, their understanding of the event on a, a level of physics and, and mechanics, were better performers. Hmm. And so having the opportunity to learn from them and then to meet other people that uh, one gentleman I met, um, he's, uh, over the years, has, has been a, a champion, left arm arm wrestler, world champion. What uh, left
0: arm? What's the, like, what, why left arm? Is there something to terrible that? Terrible palsy. Oh, okay. So
1: he had almost no use on the right side of his body. Wow. He was actually, there was, um, he actually was in an article, a small article in Muscle and Fitness back in, ooh, I'll say the mid-2000s. hmm um, because he was, he's gone to a few shows, and I've watched some pretty big men die trying to get his arm down. Wow. That left arm. But I watched him, the very first time I tried to deadlift a car, I could not. And I watched him do it with only one side of his body.
0: That's crazy. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, the events were, were, by today's standards, this is going back, oh, 2004? Yeah. yeah 2004 so like 15 years now the events have grown and developed and even at the amateur level the 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 difficulty has changed mm. as young athletes have gotten stronger but most of us were in our 30s in the on the amateur level circuit in this area in ottawa um ontario and uh i watched him do some things that that blew my mind and he's a personal trainer here in ontario in uh saint, saint Catharines, i believe um There, One of the the first event that we had was uh, a medley. And so it was um, picking up multiple items and placing them on a raised platform. Okay, yeah. And there was a square hunk of steel, about an inch and a half thick, that Mm -hmm. weighed 100 pounds. And it was laying on asphalt. And I watched him, no word of a lie, it was the most incredible thing. It took me two hands to pick it up, put it on the platform. Yeah. I watched him take his left hand... And slam his fingers against the side of the plate, and the other he had his left foot against the other side. And I watched him literally tilt it up, mm-hmm. so it was standing on its edge. Pinch grip it and just wow. up onto the platform. Wow, it was insane to watch him That's do nice. this. Yeah, it was because it was understanding. I've always been a, a freak for trying to understand um, what allows people to do these things and what skill mm-hmm. sets they need. For somebody like this guy to be able to lift the things that he does requires a huge amount of cognitive control. Hmm. His neural drive has to be way higher than mine. Right. Because he's focusing so much through one side of his body while still trying to gain assistance from the other and doing everything that his brain's telling him he's not supposed to. (laughs) Right. And denying it.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Overriding it. Rejecting that.
1: It was incredible to watch and then to watch him strap into a car and do several reps and just be absolutely humbled and have him come back and he's like, "Ah, oh, I only got three. And I'm like, man, I got zero. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was incredible to, to see wow. and to, to be able to learn from guys like this about what it takes to be able to get in there. And I, I went and competed for fun, for enjoyment of the sport, for mm-hmm. the camaraderie of the people that I got to meet over the years and learn from, learn from some incredible athletes, got to meet some national level and world level athletes over the years. Um, I got to meet the mountain, I think in 2015. Yeah. Uh, Haftor Bjornson. Yes. Meet him, meet him and his coach. Magnus really? For yeah. Magnus for Magnuson actually... I watched him as a teen when he won four times World's Strongest Man. Yeah, and I was just like, he's always been one of my favorites, and it was on my bucket list to be able to meet him someday. And he ended up judging provincials back mm-hmm. in I think it was 2015, 2016, somewhere around there. Yeah, 2015. So to have him a refing for me, it was I was like a like a, a kid at, at uh, you were 15. geeking out, man. Yeah, oh, <laughs> God, it was crazy. I was just, uh. I got a picture with him at the end, and he's still a huge guy, but he was probably the best ref I ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd had some good guys ref and, and judge competitions over the years, but he, if when we did the yoke carry, he came over, looked at me, and he goes, No, 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 it's too low, too low. Or no, that was <laughs> it. It wasn't high enough. He goes, It's too high, too high. He goes, Stand up. And I stood up with it, and he was like, No, 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 no. He had them readjust. He goes, You go rest, warm up brought me back in he goes okay yeah that's good okay perfect he wanted to make sure everything was perfect for each of us yeah conditions were perfect that he wasn't you know catching us off guard um very clear on the rules but very supportive it was such an honor to be able to compete and have him be the one who was refing and giving tips and not just that be able to see off the side you know you finish an event and you're dying and here comes six foot nine, 320 pounds, yeah. gigantic, and going, Good job, with a fist the size Good of a job, job. And <laughs> You're just like, a, Thanks, dude, that's crazy. Thanks. And it's amazing. Like, it's like, amazing. You picked that up. Like, we had a, a concrete Husafeld stone that it was raining that day, and we were picking it up slick. And mm. I got it down. I, I, t- I took it as far as I could, and I dropped it. And I mean, I was competing against guys 15 years younger than me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he comes over and he gives me a gives me a fist pump and he just he goes that's good he goes that's super slippery he goes I tried it before he goes that's crazy, you're telling me that's crazy? yeah. <laughs> but this is what I loved about about the sport is as much as there are rivalries and people ask about rivalries, there's still a serious. Um, I don't want to use the word brotherhood because that's that's insinuates that it's just men because there are some incredible women in the sport right, too. Right, right. There's this family sense, the sense of family mm. belonging that. Um, I, I learned from guys who taught me that when your opponent is going up for an event, you should be the one standing there coaching and yelling and pushing them to be better. Oh, wow. They'll turn around and do the same for you. That's
0: very different from a lot of community competition-based things. It's like, oh, that guy's my enemy. I want to beat him or
1: her or whatever it is. But The, the reality with this is you're only as good as your opponent. Mm. So if you push your opponent to be that much... Better, then he will do the same for you. And if you're driving him and teaching him, I've gone into competitions where there's been guys that ask me, "Okay, I don't know how to do this event. I've never done this before. Can you show me?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course." I show them how to do it, and they do better than me.
2: Right.
1: It's not something that upset me. It's something that, I guess, maybe this is the trainer, maybe this is the coach in me that's proud that I was able to help somebody reach the the pinnacle of of what it is they want to do, be able to succeed to that level rather rather than take it as a negative it's it's you helped somebody else reach a level that they were striving for help them to succeed at something that maybe they wouldn't have and i mean I, I had enough guys push me the same way it uh that was probably one of the biggest things that having retired from the sport maybe we'll see how the knee feels he said maybe yeah <laughs> maybe maybe how the knee knee replacement feels in 2020 if if i can still do a master's event i might but it's it's that uh i still have strong connections with guys in the sport that i competed with who are still competing um we had one of our guys that i think he was uh ben ruckstall was our provincial champ three four times and my claim to fame is in 2009 i actually beat him in competition. Nice. He, he outweighs me by 150, 160 pounds. Mm-hmm. He's a we call him Big Ben for a reason. He's huge. He held the uh, provincial record for numerous years for the log press, um, which he hit on standing on the back of a rickety flatbed truck, and then he pulled a Jesse Marundi and lifted one leg and just kind of. But it was.
3: Yeah. He
1: he was somebody I had competed with, and he and I are still friends, and that's. That's, a, I think, one of the biggest things in this, this sport is having that connectivity. When you see um, guys from around the world, um, Dimitar Savatinov, who, um, he's one of the strongest in the world, holds the world record for the circus dumbbell at, I believe, mm-hmm. 312 pounds, somewhere around there. Wow. Single arm press.
0: That's crazy.
1: Yeah. He's friends with Ben. And he was one of the first. Ben had an accident a few years back. Um, his leg gave out. And went tucked underneath the behind him with oh. uh, an Atlas stone in his arms. Yeah. And Dimitar was one of the first ones there to, to pull him up, to get the stone off of him, to get him first aid. That, like, these are connections that you'll have for the rest of your life, the rest of your life. And this is one of the things that I've seen with, with this sport is I've seen incredible individuals who are beyond the prime of life still, you know, what we would consider the prime of life. One of my friends... Um, is now I think about 60, but he was competing when he was 56, 57. Wow. We called him Yoda. Yoda. (laughs) Short squat, but strong and fierce and his willpower. But he was the first guy that would be standing next to you with a a, a block of chalk when you're on an event that required it on a deadlift or something like that. He was the first one there. And it was, uh, those are connections that, that I find I I value because they taught me more about life really than about the sport because they're the people who, who will show up when you need hands moving. Yeah. They're the people when you're, when you're struggling. Um, I had a phone call the day after I had my knee replacement. Um, Combination of the painkillers, combination of the pain and um, how all of those affect affect mental health and affect depression. I've dealt with depression for most of my life. Right. I was having moments where I was feeling serious regret at actually having done the knee replacement. It was so Mm -hmm. painful. It was so good. I'd wait in the middle of the night in tears and having a a friend of mine who was um, the MC at a numerous shows that I, I did for years that I competed in for years, call me up and just say, Dougie, I love you. Just say you're going to be okay. You you know, you. I've seen you go through some crazy things. I've seen you move some crazy amount of weight, and I've seen you inspire some incredible people. He's like, you're going to be okay. We're here. We've got you. It's okay to let other people hold you up. Let us let us do this for you. And like, I I can't think of any other endeavor I've been in where I've met people who meant that so genuinely and who actually yeah. That's incredible. Some people say it, but they don't do it.
0: Yeah, you know, it kind of reminds me of a kind of a line that like love is qualified through action. Uh, You know, and that when you show love, it qualifies the meaning of love versus just saying, hey, you're awesome, dude, I love you. And so, okay, well, that's nice, you know, but the action uh, qualifies it there, you know? So how is, like, you know what's funny? It's interesting. I always noticed I've I watched a lot of those documentaries about strongmen. I love that stuff. Like, when you told me your daughter, I was like, oh, this is awesome. And it seems like so many of them are from, like, Iceland or Norway, and uh, why is that? Like, or, or you know, well, England or something.
1: they at one point... At one point, we actually, this is, now this is dating me, this is going back 15, 20 years. Um, This region where I'm living in actually had per capita more strong or strength athletes than anywhere else in the world.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, the doors opened up to different parts of the world. um, And this goes even further back, um, post-Glasnost, post-Berlin Wall going down, Mm -hmm. post-fall of the Iron Curtain, all of those things. Opened up doors for a lot of these people, a lot of a lot of these athletes from different countries being able to come onto the world scene, uh, right? Because there was also opportunities for some of them to to make some money outside of their countries. So we right. had for a while there, Poland was ruling, big time. Then we did start to see um, a few coming out of uh, Sweden. You had Magnus Samuelson
2: Kamp- Yes.
1: Um, there was quite a few of these guys that were, were coming out. Um, Carlson, he, came, he was another one that came out of that out of those Nordic countries. But that was based on somebody even earlier who had really shown them what strength sports could be, and that was John Paul Sigmerson back in the 80s.
0: Yes,
3: and yes. He
1: was the first athletic strongman to really become champion. Because prior to that, you had guys like uh, Bruce Wilhelm, who was an Olympic mm-hmm. lifter, You had Jeff Capes, who was um, a decathlete, shot putter, discus, but these were a lot thicker guys, bigger guys, right? They carried a lot of mass. They didn't necessarily have the athleticism that John Paul had. And when John Paul knocked Jeff Capes out of the running for for, um, the world's strongest man, I believe it was the early 80s, it was the only year it was done in the winter, um, he yelled out, the king has lost his crown. And he proceeded to carry for several years that title, but he was gregarious, um, good looking, right. He, he looked like a Viking, you know, <laughs> he, he do the whole sword swing thing. Right. Right. You know? He was, he was, he really sold the sport. It wasn't the silence, the, the kind of, um, grumpy big guy kind of look. No, he was outgoing, celebrated his opponents. Definitely, he would call them out, tease them, and then you'd see him go, and he'd kind of put his arm around them and clap them on the back. And <laughs> he really, you know, he, Kasmeier, uh, like I said, Jeff Capes, Bruce Wilhelm, these guys were the early champions. Uh, I think it was uh, O.T. Wilson was another one. Yeah, like, These guys really championed this process, but it was John Paul who carried it. He really brought them out of their shell. So then you started to see the Magnus Samuelsons and the Sven Carlsons. And, you know, Mariusz Pusinowski's and Zadrunas Avicis. These guys were coming out of the classic strength schools in the Eastern Bloc, the Eastern countries. And that's yeah. when the history of strength in Iceland started to really develop these yeah. guys. So John Paul is a hero there now. And when guys saw what John Paul could do, they all wanted to be like him. And they have a thousand-year history.
2: A thousand-year
1: right. history of strength, Right. Of different types of stones um i would love to go and try my hand at the Husafell, just to say i put my hands on it yeah you know? yeah and this is it's this in iceland it was all a part of work and it was well historically a combination of work and and being able to colonize being able to fight right so one of the classic tests is on this one little beach in iceland where there's uh four stones that Depending which stone you pick tells you what share of the fishing, the money from the fishing that you're going to (laughs) get. So if you picked up the full stecker, that's the full share. Right. Then you got uh, a a full share of what each guy was supposed to be paid. If you couldn't and you only got the half stecker, which was the half share, then you got half of what the other guy who could pick up the first stone. But there was four of them. So you could get a quarter, half, three-quarter of full. Yeah. course, everybody wants to do the full. They want the full, yeah. Yeah, and it's a wet, slippery rock on a rainy (laughs) coastline down on the beach in pebbles, on a pebble beach. So this was a tradition. Um, Another another rock that's absolutely massive is one that they used to test themselves on at a fishing camp um, in between storms because they were bored. (laughs) And if you, I mean, even if you look at the history of sport itself, It goes back to labor and battle. Right. And Medvedev said it himself in the fundamentals of training, strength training in sport. When he talked about how in the former communist system, there was really only two reasons for propelling sport as a huge national um, uh, tool. And it was to build strong laborers or to build strong soldiers. Right. That makes sense. Right. And he he related that. Directly back to Sparta.
0: Ah, yeah. He made the connection
1: connection now. Because people think of Spartans as soldiers and warriors. But what they forget, yes, they were. They were also farmers. Yeah. Because there wasn't different classes. You had to be able to earn your way as a soldier. And civically, you Mm. had to be able to show that you were willing to provide for your neighbor and for your king. Hmm. And so that meant getting out in the field and working your field. And how could you do that if you had a weak body and a weak mind? <laughs> right.
0: So different than today's society. We don't think anything like that. Yeah.
1: No. Absolutely. But it's that was the lesson that in 1972 Medvedev was taking from Sparta in terms of him saying that that's part of the, the inspiration of what came out of the initial um, sporting system of the old communist regimes was that's what it was based on. It may not be based on that today, but like I said, this was, it was published in 74. He wrote it in 72. Um, that's what he was talking about. And when we, we take a look at a lot of these cultures, like I said, take a look at Iceland, a strong back meant that you were good on a ship, you could bring in fish, and you could help colonize. Because we tend to think of, like, the Vikings and stuff as yeah. being these warriors who raped, pillage, and plundered. But they were merchants. They were colonizers. They were travelers. They were so much more... And so this is really what has come out of that strength world there. And we're seeing it spreading in the traditions that most of us in the West didn't know about many of these Eastern countries. Yeah. Didn't know the history of strength that came out of so many of these places that existed. The Persians have long had a history of strength using uh, kegs half full of sand and rocks and pebbles and later yeah. on half full of uh, gunpowder and shot. Um, there's a fascinating history there, so it's it's all these countries have had these these cultures around strength, and with the the uh, fascination and the popularity of strongman, we've seen more of them come to the forefront. I see. And demonstrate their capabilities and demonstrate um, with that the history that they have. The Scots long have a history of strength. Yeah.
2: Another,
1: another country, Scotland, that that uses has used stones to measure strength.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: And they, they've had a long history through Highland Games. And, I mean, one of the uh, – Sir Douglas Edmonds was the world's strongest man head referee for 30 years before Magnus took over. And he right. did so after spending years sitting next to Sir Douglas Edmonds, learning everything, even after having competed. Yeah. Right? That's so amazing. It, It's amazing. It's – I geek out a little bit about it because I love the history of this. I couldn't tell. I couldn't really tell.
0: No. <laughs> I mean, this is great information. You know, a lot of people, they, they watch documentaries, they see things, you know, see people. I mean, I know I was, I remember watching, I, I can't remember, maybe it was ESPN or something back in the day, and it would show like the strongest man contest, right? And you would see this, these great feats of strength. And I remember thinking how cool it was, how amazing it was. And then just learning about it from the past into now, you see guys like maybe like Eddie Hall and guys yep. like that. And you see, like, the dude that was in, like, Game of Thrones, a gigantic dude. He was, like, he's from Iceland, I think. He's a yep. huge human being. No, he's, like, he's, a, he's huge. <laughs> I mean, it's, like, that's, like, a mutant or something like that. And I'm just amazed at, like, the discipline for it, you know?
1: One of the, um, the smallest uh, winner of the World's Strongest Man title was Yoko Ahola, who is from Iceland as well. I think he weighed in around 275 or 285. I may be off on that one. But he was the smallest ever to win. (laughs) That's crazy. At the time, he had a (laughs) 900-pound deadlift for reps. Oh, my God. This was without a suit, just with a belt, and him gripping the bar. He, He used straps on a few, but, I mean, I've watched videos of him doing it. And later on, he he would go back to World's Strongest Man and be an assistant referee and be a plate monkey. He was always there being a part of it. But he made history. I think it was two or three times that he won. He made history being the smallest. And it was his willpower and his understanding of how to strategize the Mm. events. Okay. He would kill the events he knew he could obliterate everybody else on. And the events he wasn't so strong on, he would take the points in second or third. Yeah. And at the end of the day, or at the end of the two days, when the points were tallied, he was sitting ahead of, the, ahead of everybody, and people would be like, what the hell? It looked almost like it was from behind, but it was because he played it like a chess game. He would yeah. give away the events that he didn't need, <laughs> right? and right. kill the ones that he knew he could without expending too much energy. Yeah. And that's how some of the smaller guys did it. Uh, Gary Taylor from Wales did it in the, I think it was 94 to 97, somewhere in there, I think he did it. Um. And he blew everybody away. He'd been competing for years. And his, um, I'm not going to say deficiency or anything, I don't want to say that, but where his disadvantage in the sport was his height.
2: Hmm.
1: I remember seeing one year, it was um, down on the island somewhere that they ran it. And on the beach, they had the platforms for loading odd implements. And he couldn't get the sandbag. It was like a 300 pound sandbag to the first platform because The platform was, I think, six feet, and he <laughs> stood at five, five or five six. Right. And so he's trying to get this sandbag up overhead, and he couldn't. It was, for him, it was incredibly disheartening. And I mean, I've seen that over the years, but other events favored him, the deadlift, because he didn't have to travel far with the he bar. Had to travel, exactly. Yeah. Right. He didn't have to go as far as, say, somebody like Half Tor. Half that bar is almost at his ankles because he's so <laughs> tall. Right. right whereas a guy like gary taylor or yokohola the bar is between mid-shin and their knee yeah, yeah. so they can actually lift with more leverage yeah right mechanically yeah. their moment arm is wider allowing them right there's more force yes whereas guys like Tor, they've closed down that moment arm so they're mm-hmm. lifting from a disadvantage and this is where over the years like watching this we learned a lot myself and, and and teammates and people i i trained with about how to maximize the events that we did by watching these guys and studying their approaches the smart guys like yokoholo and gary taylor who you know for years were, were always in the like the top five yeah right you see it it's not all about just the brute strength it's about understanding the events understanding how they how the implements move and sometimes it's just about pure, you know, grit, pure willpower right? to push through. We've seen some guys, I've seen they're, they're wrapped from their, their hip to their ankle because muscles are pulling away and they're not going right. to stop. They're right. pressing everything to, <laughs> to get in there and pull like it's, is it worth it at the end of the day? For Eddie Hall, all he wanted was to be able to say he was world's strongest man and then he stopped. Right. That's like, amazing, right? He, he was he done, was do. man. Yeah. yeah, that's what he said he was going to do. And for some, that's what it is. For others, it's wanting to do it again and again and show everybody that, it's, yeah. that they're not a one-trick pony. Right. right. But, I mean, we've learned so much over the years from guys like Kazmaier
2: mm-hmm. and John
1: Paul and Jeff Capes. Um, I actually have a little story that, that is actually really cool for Canadians with uh-huh. the the game that dates back to that, that early eighties where John Paul first won. Um, the one of the guys who was in the top five that year was an, a man by the name of Dan Poulain, who unfortunately passed away about 10 years ago now, a little more than 10 years. Actually yeah, about 12 years. He, um, he was a world champion arm wrestler and had been a power lifter. And this was back when arm wrestling was still an event in World's Strongest Man. Okay. And later, they would retire it after somebody broke their arm. <laughs> but, makes sense. Yeah, but it was still an event back then. And so um, Jeff Capes' wrist got broken when he went up against Dan Poulain. Dan Poulain, mm-hmm. like I said, at the time was a champion arm wrestler, world champion. And Jeff Capes lost control in his wrist and just yeah, and he broke his wrist. And so, John Paul had already won on points. And the last event was the arm wrestling. And so, he comes in, and he gets his hand into Dan Poulet's hand. Yeah. They start getting ready, and then he pulls back and just shakes his hand and goes, no, I concede. Wow. Only time in his career he conceded an event to anybody. Wow. And it was a Canadian. There's <laughs> Dan Dan So Canadian super proud. Super, super <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> proud, but it was one of those crazy little moments of... You know, he raised Dan Poulet's hand, and he's like, there's no way. He said, I saw him break. You know, yeah. Rip. He's like, no, I'm not going to risk it. He's too good, too strong. Yeah. So he was more than willing to concede that event to him, give him that event. And it was just like, that, that, those are the kind of people that are our heroes. Right. Right. They're right. The, kind, the kind of people that, you know, you don't go in no matter what. Sometimes you've got to strategize and look at it. And John Paul, he was one of the first, I guess you could say, that really did in events like that he knew he'd won it yeah
0: Yeah. he knew ahead of time so how have you taken have you taken your time in the strongman field and the the different strategies and experience into your personal training career
1: how i look at things um my training partner um was his nickname was the technician
2: Mm -hmm.
1: We could go into a show, it could be pouring rain. They'd roll out a tire, slap it down in the middle of the parking lot. We'd all go, Oh, no. Does anybody have rock climbing shoes? All of a sudden, no. i <laughs> yeah, no. people were like, I got running shoes. I had steel toed boots, not mm-hmm. big soles. Um, and we'd all kind of look at it. And then we'd look over <laughs> at my buddy and we'd see him staying there, just kind of looking at everything. And we'd watch the first few competitors and they'd slip and slide. And we actually had this in 2006 at a charity show that we did. For um, uh, uh, combination homeless shelter and support center for single dads, mm-hmm. it's called Power of Dads. And I watched my buddy look at everybody. The first three guys going up, and he was just like, "No, no." He goes, "Watch, because I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you how you're going to have to do it." He goes, "Just do exactly as I do." So we watched, and he walked in, set himself in closer to the tire, used a technique he'd never used before, and proceeded to get eight flips, whereas he was the first person to get one. Right. So everybody looked at each other and okay, we're doing it the way he's doing it. And we called him the technician because he would do that. He would look at the event, break it down. And even if he couldn't do it, he would tell you, okay, you're gonna have to go in like this because the last guy did this, this didn't work. You're gonna have to go and approach it this way. Take a look at it from the angle. Maybe slide your hands back a half inch because I think that's all you're gonna need. But look at where their hips were versus yours. Get your hips back. And so that really taught me a lot about watching Everything that people are doing, understanding a how the body works and what the leverages are, and understanding mm-hmm. the biomechanics, but then being able to break down the events so that you could you could maximize the performance without injuring yourself. Because I mean, I've seen some hairy things over the year. I watched a car deadlift where um, this was at my first time at provincials in 2007, where one competitor he stood up, and one rule of thumb when you're doing a car deadlift is uh, when people deadlift with a bar. I'm sure you've seen people hitch. Yeah, their,
0: I have. Like, yes, yes. They let
1: the knees come ahead of the toes. Yeah. And they hit it. That's one thing if you have a barbell. But when your hands are to the side and yeah. the weight is behind you, don't hitch. The stress on the patella tendons is phenomenal. And mm. this guy found out because they both ruptured at the same time. Oh, both legs. wow. Yeah, it was brutal. But I mean, he, it was his first time doing a car deadlift and we'd all been talking back and forth with him and with others and we watched and those knees shot forward and bam.
2: bam and so for
1: a lot of us it was proof positive why you don't shoot the knees forward keep the hips back dry from the glutes mm-hmm. forward don't try and make it all quads right right and of course this is where we would see bodybuilders coming into the industry into the sport and they would try and do it all with quads because their quads were massive
0: right right they were
1: accustomed to powering through the quads all the time because when they were on stage that was one of their big money poses. Right. Was right. That quad out in front. Well, this was a danger to their tendons. And for us, that was one way for us to be able to tell people, yeah, there was this guy back in 07, this is what happened. They were like, okay, no hips back.
0: Hips. So
1: big yep. time. This this allowed me to be able to take a look, A, just in terms of technique, of being able to watch people who I could then approach, my own clients being able to Look through things more mechanically, be able to see what's happening versus it just being a movement. Yeah, understanding every aspect of it, right? Right. Me, that's that big part, um, and then the heart came in after that. The the soul, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, in strongman, you learn that when you go to pick something up, that implement is going to tell you, "I'm not moving." And you have to tell it to shut up and move. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. As simple as that. (laughs) You go to pick up a bar, and many people, they'll go to pick up something heavy. And you see this a lot in gyms when people overload the bar, or if it's their first time deadlifting. Yeah. They go to pick it up, their hips shoot, and they they go, nope. They download it, and they walk away. Right. It doesn't mean that they didn't have the strength. If they had the technique, and they had the, the ability to go to the brain and tell themselves, okay. Here's the tension point. I feel that weight, it's moving. Versus, oh, it's heavy, I'm stopping. Right. And that's yes. kind of overruling that natural fear pre-pain event in the brain mm-hmm. that occurs. Yeah. Right? Where you're afraid that pain will occur if you continue, so you stop. And it's a it's a, a defense mechanism.
2: Yeah,
0: of course.
1: Right? Of and course. It's not something you want to override all the time, but in strongman. You learn how to override it on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you discover that your limits are so much further than you anticipate. Yes. Yes.
0: I, totally agree with that.
1: Like we we look at things and we tell ourselves before we do anything that we can't. About so many things in life, not just lifting. Yes. But yeah. there's so many things that we we simply look and all we say is, Oh, I can't do that. And why not? Yeah. You know, I've, I've taken guys who are, I had one guy come to our little training group back in the day. Um, and when we had our tires out and I had two tires, I had a 900 and a 550. Mm-hmm. And this guy was just like, he was a 5'3, 135 pounds. And I can't flip that tire. Why not? It's like, oh, I can't do that. And one of our teammates, his girlfriend walked up and flipped it. He's, <laughs> he's standing there. He's, he's kind of looking at <laughs> I was just—I was like, okay, come, come with me. Let's take a look at how you're thinking of flipping it, and let's take a look at how you should. Got him into the right position. I said, now, where do you want the tire to be? He's like, what do you mean? I said, where do you want this tire to go? because I want it to go that way. I said, well, take it that way. Yeah. Make it go that way. Flip it over. And so, first time, he got it about a foot off the ground. Then it came down, and he was in shock. And I was like, yeah. I said, okay, now I got to remind you, it's a 550 tire but it's not 550 in your hands. Mm-hmm. He looked at me kind of confused. And I said, okay. yeah, yeah. Science. I go the far, far side of the tread that's on the ground is where your axis is. I said, and as you tip it, it's going to get lighter. Right. And I can see his eyes opening. This is a guy who um, moves heavy equipment with machines for a living. So he gets that side of it. He understands that.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: So as soon as I started to say that, I said, by the time you get it to the top, it's going to be maybe 10 pounds. And so the second time, he got it up to chest height and then stepped back. And he was kind of like, looks at me, he's nodding. And I was like, okay, what's your next step? He's like, next step, it goes over. And it goes did. Goes over, yeah. And he did it again. And he ended up doing five reps. And he was just so excited. But it was getting him to understand how to push beyond that initial fear reaction that you're going to get hurt. Yeah. Right? Not yeah. always something you want to do with people. But for certain, like I said, the, the application to, to re- real life, to, to out there is enormous because you learn so much about how to drive beyond what's either expected of you or Mm -hmm. what you expect of yourself and to understand where your limitations truly are.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. I feel like also that strongman community, like you're saying, the guys helping each other and it's like, and you're helping this guy and it's this community of helping and supporting even in the face of competitions, like, no, no, there's still, we're still helping each other, even though we're competing.
2: Oh yeah.
0: And that, that
1: seems like that's carried over pretty big for you with that. For me, it has. I think I, at the time I joined, I was looking for community. I was very, um, I guess you could say I, I was sh- shy. No, I'm sorry. I haven't. Some guy lost his cap.
0: <laughs> oh, No.
1: <laughs> Um, I guess you could say I was kind of shy about trying to trying to introduce myself into different communities, and I'd always wanted to try the sport. Yeah. And so my introduction introduction to it was trying a Hoosefeld Hufus, stone that was at this particular store's location with one of Canada's strongest men. They're promoting their first anniversary. And he was one who said, You just picked that up like it was nothing. You've got something. Why don't you try? So I tried out my first competition and I met some people who immediately were right by my side saying, okay, now you got to do this. You got to do that. And cheering me on. And it was like, okay, why, why are they doing this? Considering I thought they would want to beat me. Yeah. Most sports where in tra- when I was in track as a teenager, I would go off by myself. I had my yep. teammates around, but I would go off by myself and try and focus and try right. and build it. Here. It was different. It was guys, one guy who who has been one of my mentors and, and close friend now, after all these years, he was the first. He quickly grabbed me around the shoulders and come pulls me over. This was before a tire flip event. He's like, okay, okay, I need you to, to walk with me with this. He goes, let's take a look. How many flips do you think it takes to get it from here to there? And how can we do it in fewer? And he just got my brain working. And he was treating me like an equal. And he'd been in the sport for 10 years prior to that. Right. But he was treating me like an equal. And this was my first time doing a tire or second time doing a tire flip. And it was just like, okay, I was going up before him because the way they normally do the order is um, the people who are lower scoring on each event will be the first ones up. So if you came last, that means you're going to be first on the next event. Right. You you never want to come last because you get less rest. So the guys that came in first are usually the last. So I was going up for tire flip before him and he was just like, okay, we saw somebody else do seven. He goes, I want to see you do six. You can do yeah. six. So I managed to get it in about five and a half, technically six. He's like, okay, I've got to do it in five then. And he got it in five, but we celebrated together. And over the years, he became somebody that was a, a benchmark for me. He was a strong supporter and a close friend and a benchmark. Eventually, I did manage to beat him in competition, but it took me years to do that. It took me a long time, and it was he was the one right. who came to me. He was like, he goes, after all these years, it's so nice to see you step up this way. You know, and that was, yeah. I, needed, I needed that community. I needed that um, in my life at that time. And it contributed so much to how I welcomed others into the community. Right. And how I helped to build it, uh, helped to foster it, helped to coach it. And it's something that I will, I will you know, very, very strongly defend in any situation you know how you treat other people in the sport. You know, having somebody alongside me shouting at me. Um, there's a young man now that is one of our top competitors here in Canada. Enormous young man. The first time I met him was 2011 in Kingston at uh, Kingston's Strongest Man. I had won in 2010, and this kid walked in, six foot five, 275 pounds, cut from stone. He was a body. an animal. Yeah. Oh, holy smokes. But he he had a face like a leprechaun. He had this little kid's face (laughs) with this little beard. And he was just kind of so weird to look at. But he was was a kid. Well, we came to the truck pull. And I did really well. And he came to me and said, okay, I've never done this before. He's like, it's a hand-over-hand truck pull sitting on a giant tire. He's like, is there a rhythm? Is there?" I was like, yeah, man, it's a heartbeat. You've got to think. Boom, boom. The boom, boom is you reaching out with your hands. One, two lean right back and pull Yeah. On two, I said think about it as a heartbeat never lose the heartbeat and he's just looking at me and he's like a heartbeat, a heartbeat. And I said okay I'm going to call it like a cadence for you I said I want you to listen to that only I'll be right beside you he did it his hand slipped the truck stopped he started it again and he still won the event right but he got up came over grabbed me gave me a big hug he's like I wouldn't have done it if I didn't have you shouting that yeah and so we did it with a couple of he did it with somebody else and i did it with somebody else but that to me is just the way that it should be done yeah right? it's if you want to build that sense of community you've got to teach it out with every single person you meet even if you're you're not winning i came in third that year i was going behind two giants who outweighed me by almost you know one by at the time 40 pounds another one by 140 pounds but i wasn't going to give in yeah and I was gonna coach along the way because I had great coaches do it for me. I think it's the pay it forward kind of attitude,
3: right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I had coaches who gave so much to me without asking for anything in return. The only thing they really requested was if somebody showed up for a show who was new, my my training partner, and I would get an elbow from the promoters and they'd be like, Hey guys, would you mind helping him out? Yeah. He's never yeah. done this before. Would you mind just kind of stepping up and say, yeah, let's go. Course, we'll do it and it it increases their experience
2: of course them
1: feel better and for us it just let us know we were doing something right
0: yeah i mean can you imagine that at any other competition you know you go up to hey you know let me help you out here okay (laughs) like so foreign to people yeah i love it though i love it though it's a sense of camaraderie and helping each other even though you're competing i love that
1: Well, yeah, like on deadlifts, you don't want to see somebody fail. Even if they're pulling more than you, you want to see that weight go up. Right. It's impressive. It's impressive. It is impressive. Same with the log press. You want to see it go. Sure, they're going to beat you, but somebody's got to. Yeah. You know, if nobody's beating you, it's boring. Like we knew a few guys that were kind of cherry pickers that never moved up to the next level, but would keep hitting, you know, beginner level shows. And it was just kind of like what's in it for you? Yeah. You, know, you kind of have these conversations. What's in it for you? Uh, are you really enjoying this? Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, they'd be like, yeah, you know, maybe not. And you'd see them right. disappear. You had other guys who went in thinking they were going to win and they wouldn't and they'd get PO'd and they'd never, you'd never see or hear from them again. Right. I think for, for those of us that lasted longer, it was because of our love. For the sport and I love for, for other people coming into it. Yeah. Was yeah. wanting to see people have as much fun as we do. You know, enjoy it as much. Yeah.
3: You
1: know, that's amazing. Even if, not, like, even if it's not a winning lift, it may have been a personal best.
0: Yeah. I think that's what you see. Like if you watch it like on TV and you hear people, the voices on the side are like, ah. And it's like the other guys are like, they want to see. They want to see it happen. They want to... And that's just so foreign to so many people. This cheering aspect of... Most of it's like, I'm competing against you. I don't talk to you. You know, we don't do this. And I just... I think it's pretty interesting having the opposite way, you know. I think it's beautiful. Yeah.
1: I think that's the way I look. I think it's beautiful. And a lot of people actually do comment on that. Yeah. Um, I remember after one of the... I... For... The first 10 years that I was competing, I competed in a lot of shows that were at um, local fairs, so different yeah, farming yeah. communities in the area. Right. And there was one that I competed in four years in a row. And the last year that I was there, there was a couple of kids. I placed, I think, third or fourth that year, and a couple of kids came up, and they wanted my autograph. They were about 14, 15. I, yeah. I, I had this nickname that was a throwback from my childhood in video arcades, Mad Dog. Mad knew yeah. Mad dog. our training group was called mad dogs powerhouse and uh i played the role i played a character and people loved it and i had fun I would call yeah. and i would scream out mad dogs lift more and people loved it it was fun yeah these kids came up and they're like mad dog mad dog i want your autograph i was like why i didn't come in first mm-hmm. and their dads were standing there and their dads were like you don't understand what it is you've taught our boys they like they've been watching you for three years they come in the field picking out the best rocks they can because they want to lift rocks like you do. Yeah, field stones was one, was one of my best events. I mm-hmm. could read, read the weight well. Yeah. And they said, but more than that, you were always there with your opponents. And you taught them more about sportsmanship than they learned in high school.
3: Yeah.
1: And I was just That's stunned. Amazing. I was stunned. It was just like, really? And I was like, yeah. And I remember one of the promoters coming to me after, and they're like, you see? The mad dog had something to teach, after all. <laughs> the mad dog had something to teach. But it was, thats
0: pretty awesome. Well,
1: I think that sums it up. That is
0: sums it up, and uh, you know, so I was wondering because I saw on your Skype thing it says "mad dog," and I was like, Oh, this is interesting." I figure it'll reveal itself. So, uh, very good reveal. Well, mad dog, I am really happy that you decided to come on, and I mean, it's—it's so apparent how much you love all of this and and everything regardless of what you're going through you have this incredible joy with uh strongman competitions health and wellness and um man there's a lot of information to digest and i think people are gonna literally love it It's awesome
1: man i appreciate the opportunity i appreciate what you do with these podcasts i think it's pretty awesome
0: thank you so much doug well excuse me mad dog okay
2: (laughs)
1: I love it. We will
0: be in touch uh, soon, Mad Dog. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Derek. Take care.
0: All right. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye.